Harvey Hahn has asked, should we bring our small catechisms every week? And um, the real question there is, are we ever going to use these catechisms that we bring in every week? And I thought about that this morning. That's why I put one up here. Does everyone have one of these? That I've, if you don't have one in your household, they're free to take. So be sure to do that. Um, the, the catechism, you know what? Which, let's, let's start with prayer, lest I be accused of not being pious. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, and Holy Baptism, you began your good work in our catechumens, and you have blessed their instruction and training in your word. We implore you to pour out your Holy Spirit on their hearts and minds so that they will truly love and revere you, confess the faith with joy and boldness, endeavor to live according to your commandments, and praise and glorify you as their faithful God and Lord. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, uh, Good question. Have I done my catechism spiel with you guys yet? Um, in case I haven't, Luther's small catechism was written for primarily teaching the faith to children. So when you, um, have you ever made, I think jelly is the first thing that comes to mind for me, or if you just put something on the stove and forget about it for a while, that's what happens to all the liquid that's boiling in there. It kind of boils down to the sludge at the bottom. So this this, uh, what's, what's that called, that process? Concentration. Yeah, you're concentrating it down. That's not the word I'm looking for, Keller, but uh, <laughs> the, this, this like boiling down, or, or even like, was it? Reducing. Yeah, reducing it down. That's not the word. It doesn't matter. Um, so, so when you simmer it down uh, to this most concentrated reduction, that's the idea of what's going on in the catechism. So that if I'm on the elevator with somebody and they say to me, hey, uh, you're a Christian? What's a Christian? And the elevator is getting closer to the end. And, I, and I, so I'm, I'm going to take the whole Bible and say, well, let's start with Genesis 1. And I, and I don't have time to get, I will, I'll never actually get to the gospel by the time the elevator gets to the floor, right? So uh, what, they, what we've done in the, the, the catechism, the idea of a catechism predates Luther. It's actually early in the Christian church. Catechism comes from the Greek kata, echo. So echo, sound. Uh, kata means again, so to hear again. So the concept of a catechism is to repeat that which is important again and again and again so that it is learned. That is how children learn, and frankly, that's how all of us learn. Uh, whether or not you like it, like when you were, if you went like me, going to school in like the early 2000s, you learned the words of a lot of Nelly songs uh, against your will, just from repetition or whatever. Uh, in sync, but whatever music that you're hearing on the radio over and over again, you, you learn the words. Um, so it's good to hear good things so that they become part of your, your internal. Um, so we teach the kids the catechism, which the basics of the catechism are um, the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. Those are like the basics of the Christian faith. And, and not even what they mean, but just those basic things. Uh, and so and then what the, what the church also wants to do is say, wait, what about those, those basic three things are a start. In fact, it's worth writing down. The Ten Commandments, the Creed, 
the Lord's Prayer. Those are like the basics. So this is how God uh, has taught us to live and also shows us our sin. Creed, how we confess who, who is God? How does he save us? How does he dwell with us? Um, did he create us and so forth? And we'll be talking about that soon enough. The Lord's Prayer, how we talk to God, and how he, how he gives his gifts to us and we respond. Those primary things are essential before we get to maybe that we consider the second, the second level. Our baptism. How the Lord who saves us on the cross delivers his cross to us in holy baptism. Confession and absolution. Just the way that he speaks his forgiveness to us. And then the Lord's Supper. His body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. So we don't really start with these things because, like, for example, I don't need the Lord's Supper if I don't have... I'm, I don't, I, I'm, I'd rather avoid undergoing chemotherapy unless I have cancer. If I have cancer, you're not going to be able to stand between me and the chemo, right? So before I, dwell, before I desire any of the things that give me forgiveness, I need to know that I've got cancer. So the Lord gives us his Ten Commandments, and we start there. Um, so that's the ordering and, and why we kind of approach it from that way. I mean, sometimes people teach confirmation and go in that order, but uh, I, I try to follow the liturgical order. Um, so the catechism is this condensed version of what these things are and what they mean and how they're grounded in the scriptures. So if you're familiar, if you grew up Lutheran, like the, what is the first commandment? What does this mean? So we're teaching it to a kid because a kid's always asking, if you have children, they're always asking, what is this? What is that? And always asking, why, 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 why? The, the German, was ist das? What is, that's, the, that's actually the catechism. The first commandment, was ist das? What is that? What does it mean? Um, so that's only a 30-page document that Luther wrote for children and for, really, the church was so bad after the Reformation um, because the, all the priests were, weren't even teaching the Bible. He wanted to equip pastors with a basic way to teach the faith, small catechism. And then he expounded on that a bit more, the large catechism, it's a little bit deeper, right? So we have the Luther small large catechisms. But the small catechism is only 30 pages. Uh, that's, if you, have, if, you have, if you did bring this with you, it's like the first maybe 30, if you take out the index, the, the uh, table of contents, pages and all that, it's like 30 pages. Um, and then the rest of it's like, uh, expands even further expanding those things with deeper questions like like last week we we're talking about baptism and there are a few questions after the class regarding like what if someone dies um, before baptism or, or like like these kind of it tries to get into the weeds of some of these specific questions that it's not put together by Luther it's put together by a bunch of pastors in the Missouri Synod um, and there's, a, there's older copies. Nancy's for, uh, joining us today. Say it, Nancy. Nancy's got the original uh, English translation, the, the uh, catechism that she brought along. Um, the, and that's been translated a few different times. But in the back of that section, it's got the same, like, expand, expanding the themes. Like, it, what do these things all mean at a deeper level, especially for us today in the, well, in that case, the 20th century. Uh, that that catechism and it's, and it's um, what, what came in the next two waves of it didn't really address evolutionism too much. Um, certainly didn't address abortion. 
didn't address euthanasia, did not address gender issues, all these things that are very present dangers that are being taught you know, in, in, to the children in the schools. Um, so this new catechism is tr trying to address more directly the issues that are faced by our people. But also with an eye toward general questions like what do we do with angels? How do we, how do we think about angels or all that kind of stuff? Dinosaur, how do dinosaurs fit into the creation narrative and all that kind of stuff? That's, those are the weeds that the catechism addresses. So I, I, I wanted to equip you with that for your own like reading at home. And the idea here is to get into the 10,000 foot level of these things. The, the, that 30 pages that I referenced before is actually in the back, or the, it's in the middle of the hymnal around the 300, the early 300s, I believe. So the catechism's in here. And it's also at the back of the, the, the company issued standard ESV Bible. Uh, it's in the back of this as well. So um, I need, I should be research, I, I should be, uh, Reference, referencing it more often for you guys because on New Member Sunday, if you choose to join, um, I'll say to you, do you believe the small catechism is the proper exposition of the scriptures? And you'll say, yes, I believe. And then you'll say, but we never opened it in class. So uh, I should probably have you look at that more directly. But the idea of what I'm doing here is um, trying, to get get, trying to get through the, the actual themes of that document. So good, good question, Harvey. Uh, before, so I got a lot of ground to cover between this week and next week. We're jumping into the Lord's gift of the law and really God's word, the gift of law and gospel, as you see. So before we get into God's word, we're going to talk about truth in general. So I got a picture from the matrix here that was really cool in 2001, which I realize dates me. It's a 22 year old reference. So uh, if you saw the matrix, you got the famous scene of him offering uh, Morpheus, uh, played by Keanu Reeves, these two pills, a blue pill and a red pill. One is, if he takes this pill, then he'll continue in the naivete of this artificial reality. Uh, the concept of, uh, if you're familiar with the Matrix, all of humanity, this is like in the future, humanity has been like artificially grown by robots. You know, it's, it's a very likely future for us. <laughs> Uh, by AI finally took over and it started to, I mean, we've, think about how we've, like, we're starting to fabricate humans with, through various uh, embryonic stuff that we can do in the labs. So that's all that they've done is they started to fabricate all these things and then they've tapped into the human brain to give images of pleasurable things or just like everything that we see in this world is actually being experienced by me because my brain, like by when I slap my hands, well, I'm not really slapping my hands together. My brain is telling me that I feel two things hitting each other, but it doesn't mean these things are actually happening or my hands are even in front of me, but my eyes see my hands. So if I can just trick my brain that there's hands here and that there's a feeling there, then that's an entire artificial reality that's been created. All of humanity in the movie, The Matrix, is actually like stuck in these little cog machines that are feeding them food through IV and incubating their lungs and then plugging into their brains. And so uh, the character on the front of the, he offers this pill. If you take the pill, it, it causes the machine to spit you out because it thinks you're dead. And then you're obviously, you're thrown into this actual reality where you're looking up and you see all these bodies that are 
being artificially run by machines, and it's kind of a creepy concept. But what I like about it is it brings up the concept of truth. What is real? What is, what is reality? So the quote is on here, what is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see, then real is simply electrical signals interpreted by your brain. That's the concept there in the movie. So we live at a time where reality, what is the really real, is in question. So you're no longer able to talk about something that is objectively true. It's all a matter of subjective, my, my personal view of what is true. So then you're able to say, like the, the picture there, live your truth. You've got your truth, I've got my truth, and they can be contradictory, but that's okay. Because what's true for you is true for you, what's true for me is true for me. Well, that's not what truth, that's not what truth is. So I either walk in front of the 18-wheeler and it kills me, or it doesn't. Whether or not I believe it's happening or not, it's like that's, that's what's happening, right? Uh, it, in fact, in the, the Hindu faith, very much the, the, the all of reality is this, like, illusion. But we, we don't, I don't think we face people as much in our day and age that think reality is an illusion, but rather they just deny that there's an objectivity that is outside of ourselves of what is true and what is false, and therefore there's no way to say what is good and evil, and there's no way to say that what, what is God Right? And also, I don't need God. If, I, if there's not an evil, if I can't be sure about what is evil, then I don't actually know what sin is, so I don't actually need a savior for my sin. So knowing what reality is, is, a, is a, I think, a very helpful starting point here. And Jesus gives us this great line in John 8 as he's talking to his disciples. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. That's you, by the way. Did you know you were a disciple? We talk about this in our first class, Matthew 28, make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching. We think disciples are like Peter, James, and John, you know, the big 12. Uh, well, yeah, it includes them, but a disciple is anybody who's been baptized and is taught the word. So if you've been baptized and you're learning God's word, you are a disciple. So as Jesus says here, if you abide in my word, that is dwell in it, you are my disciples, and you will know the truth. Now, the Greek word here for truth is the concept of reality. So we think you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's the famous thing, like the truth will set you free. Uh, we think truth very often as, as opposed to that which is false. So there's a right and a wrong answer to something. But when Jesus talks about truth, and this in John 8, it's really getting at this, what is reality? If you dwell in my word you will know not only what is true as opposed to what is false, but you will know what is reality. And isn't that, isn't that the Christian worldview then? So I know not just my reality, but I, I have certainty regarding absolute reality, that this world is created by God, that we have a clear beginning and we know there will be a clear end. I know that I exist. I know that my hands are in fact clapping in front of me. And most importantly, I know, I know my problem, but I also know my solution. So we have here, uh, there's a contrast between reality, that is what things are truly, and then this idea of, this very popular idea today of live your truth. Two things said in opposites. 
The, the popular philosophical term uh, started around the 80s, perhaps, and then grew into full force in the 2000s called post-modernity, post-modernism. Anybody heard that phrase? It's kind of out of vogue now. Now we're like post-post-modernity. I think it's just apathy. People just don't care. But the idea of post-modernity is that we, you can't be true about, oh, sorry, you can't be sure about what is true. Uh, this is really clean, seen clearly at uh, 9-11, the crashing of the twin, the, the, the Muslims crashing the planes of the Twin Towers. So those guys were motivated by what cause? They weren't just angry. What were they? Yeah, they're Muslims. So they were motivated by this divine book that they believed God told them to do this. So therefore, everybody with a divine book is suspect. And we can't be true about what religion is, is right or wrong. Atheists would say all religion is bad because if you believe in crazy things, it makes you do crazy things. But if you are going to be religious, at least just get along with everybody else. So you see the famous sticker on the back of like every Prius in uh, Washington State that would say coexist, right? Um, which if you look closely at the coexist bumper sticker, it's got like all the different religions represented. And the idea of getting along with other people isn't bad. We have that already in the fifth commandment. In fact, all the commandments are having us love our neighbor, even our enemies as ourselves. But coexist isn't saying to just get along. Coexist is saying we can't, be, we can't be sure about what is good and evil, right and wrong. So we just need to agree that we're, we're just going to choose our own truth. But they're all contradictory truths. And yet, it's, so it's, it's this like crazy view of reality that we can hold to these, these, these spiritual truths that have physical consequences and pretend that these contradictory ideas can be held simultaneously or side by side. And they simply can't. There's either right or wrong. What's nice about Christianity is we have a patience with those who disagree with us. But we're clear about what is wrong. That's why, you, rightly, you don't have a lot of faithful Bible-believing pastors participating in interfaith worship services. Very big deal in Missouri Synod, because we always get in trouble for refusing to like go to, after 9-11, again, they had the joint worship at Yankee Stadium, and like we, one guy actually went and he got in trouble, but we, weren't, we don't want to go and pretend like, you know what, a really bad thing happened, so we're going to get all the representatives from all the religions together, and we're all going to pray to God, because ultimately, it's the same guy. We're all on, we're all on different paths up the mountain, but at the end, we'll, we'll all hit the top. That's the Hindu view. We're all, we're all kind of, all streams, all rivers flow to the same ocean. Is another way you've heard that, maybe? No, no. <laughs> so God says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, says Jesus. So I need to be clear about, about these things. So, God's, uh, so not only do we know reality from Jesus, but, but he has spoken reality into existence through his word. And that's this prominent place of the divine scriptures that we have, is that God has spoken creation. Let there be light. Let there be, and there was. And uh, then that word becomes flesh in Jesus. So Jesus is the incarnate, the in flesh. Incar if you heard that's a big word, uh, incarnation, You'll see us thrown around, you'll see thrown around, but incarnatus est, the, uh, the incarnation 
If you go to Taco Bell and you, and you order a carne asada burrito, what is that? Meat. Carnitas. Carne means meat. So incarnation, carne, in, meatness. <laughs> so Jesus, the divine word, the spiritual eternal Jesus becomes meat, becomes flesh in the person of Jesus. And then he ascends into heaven and continues to dwell with us in his word. So our word is not just words about God, but in fact delivers God to us and creates realities. So we have this very high view of the Lord's word and we're sure about the since the word is the word of God, and we can talk maybe at another time uh, or privately regarding the reliability. Or maybe it's a good time. Now's a good time. Regarding the reliability of the word of God. Now this is these three like diamonds at, near the bottom of page one. Um, the starting point for theology for us is the word of God. So we, ass- we, we assert from the beginning that the Bible is God's word and it is without error and, um, and unable to err unable to be fallible, and it's inspired by God. That is, God has the things that he wanted us to know, and he put it on the lips of the prophets in the Old Testament, that then became the, what we know as the Old Testament, and then put it in the mouths and hands of the apostles, which becomes what we know as the New Testament. So the Holy Spirit, all scripture, as 1 Timothy says, all scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God. So we have this divine, divine word that we take seriously, and, that's, and that guides for us what is reality. Who is our God? Who are we in relation to God? What is right and wrong, good and evil? How should I live my life? And also, it give, because it sets out before me this clear picture of what is wrong, it also exposes my sin. And that gets at the, the main point of the Bible. As I tell, when I go, I go down to the day school, during the week on occasion and talk to like, the, especially the third and fourth grades, because they are, most importantly, they think pastor is really cool. So it makes me feel good about myself when I go hang out with the third and fourth graders. That's like I'm a star. I walk in there, pastor's here, everybody. Can I have your autograph? But then they ask all these questions and they're really good because third and fourth graders are asking great questions and I don't have the answers like most of them. And I always have to tell them, so. What, what God wants us to know, or all we know about God for sure, is what he's told us about himself. But the Bible is not Google for God. It's not, what, why did God allow this, right? The, the Bible is not intended for that purpose. The Bible has two clear foci. Is that the plural focuses? One, you have a problem, and you have a solution. That's it. That's the Bible. That's the point of the Bible. From, from the beginning with the fall into sin and all through, it's showing us our problem and showing us Jesus, getting us to Jesus. So the Old Testament, waiting the promise of the Messiah, or even delivering the cross into the Old Testament, and then for us in the New Testament, receiving the gifts of the cross now. That's the point of the Bible. But then you get this weird thing that has, starts to happen. In the 1970s, I've got to bridge this because I've got a five-page handout in front of me that I'm never going to finish. Um, I'm really excited about some of these pictures. No, no dead animals this week, but um, I think there's some fun. Um, when you, if you, if you, between, depending on where you're coming from, like we'll pick on the Daskus coming from southwest Naperville, you have to pass like th- at least two Lutheran churches, 
Um, if you're coming from a northeast side like me, you ought to pa pass a Methodist and a Presbyterian church, and depending on how you make your turn, another Lutheran church, our saviors. Uh, so in different, different directions, there's all these different churches. What's, what's up with that? What are, the, what are the differences? Well, I don't have time to go down all of those rabbit holes, but here's a, a primary distinction, especially among Lutheran churches. Because there's Good Shepherd Lutheran is about 200 yards that way, and our Savior Lutheran, that it's not even a mile and a half that way. Alleluia is further away, but it's called the ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, and we are affiliated with the LCMS, um, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and all this simply means is we're Lutheran, but we mean very different things when we say Lutheran. And it comes down to this point regarding the, the Word of God, and it's not unique to our church body, our denomination. Every denomination has been infected by this battle since um, really the, so the age of enlightenment, uh, when, so when uh, all of a sudden science gets this big scientific revolution, we realize there's all this stuff happening in the science realm. We start to put faith in science over and against spiritual things. Interestingly enough, all the early, the best scientists were all Christian. So God gave them this great inquisi inquisitive mind, wondering about creation, wanting to explore the stars and all this. This is great. Curious, a healthy curiosity about God's creation. But the scientists were very clear. Science is not trying to measure spiritual things. It doesn't claim to. And yet, you'll notice that science makes assertion. Hey, sorry, if, if you come in here, you're going to work on your tan some days. So it's a great preaching. Like Sometimes at 11 o'clock service, people sitting over here, during the sermon, they're like... <laughs> And, and the, like one time a year, I think it's, I can't, maybe it's in the spring, the light hits the pulpit at the 11 o'clock service in just such a way that my, my bald glare, like it's blinding from people. And your eyes do this weird thing, you know how when you look at the sun for a bit and then your eyes like dilate or whatever, or undilate, whatever the word is. Um, then you try, try reading a sermon when your eyes are constantly going back and forth, you're trying to... <laughs> Anyway, what was I talking about? Uh, God's Word. Um, so, Age of Enlightenment. So, science can't measure the spiritual realm. Can't, doesn't claim to. Science's job is to test and measure the physical realm. And yet, scientism has started making claims about the spiritual realm that it can't measure anyway. So, science says there's no God. Well, the science's job isn't to tell me there's no God. Science's job is to tell me how much stuff weighs and whether or not things are repeated. That kind of stuff. Um, so as we, get, as we take that enlightenment idea, you push it up towards like Marxism and this was a guy called Hegel in the, in the 18th century, 19th, uh, 19th century, mid 19th century, 1800s. We get this, uh, this idea that history is evolving and progressing. That is, we are evolving, so Darwinian evolutionism, so there's not a, we weren't created, we just kind of started from nothingness and evolved over billions and billions of years. Um, there is no God, there's no spiritual realm. And then, so when we look at the Bible, we look at religion, we do notice that there seems to be a lot of commonality among the religions, and they seem to be very important narratives for individual cultures, and they have value. 
So you can read like um, any, any like Hindu stuff. And, you know, the stuff you read in fortune cookies that are written by Buddha. Like those are, those are kind of cool little sayings here and there, right? They're tr- like these natural truths about being nice to people, whatever. Um, but that doesn't make them, they're not divine. They're just good advice that we can learn from in the past. So the Bible then has took this new role of saying, well, we know it's not the inspired word of God because there is no God. And if there is, he's not going to write his stuff down on paper because he's spiritual and we're physical. Um, But this is some handy stuff written about God back in the way back in the day for God's Jewish, the Israelites, the Israelite people. So it's a helpful historical book, but it's not divine. Uh, or there's aspects of it that are divine, but not all of it. Because you know what doesn't happen? Creation. Uh, somebody getting s- swallowed by a big fish and living to tell the tale. So all the miracles of the Old Testament were suspect. And this, this uh, teaching came about called higher criticism, which is basically this. When we look at God's word, there's stuff, the, the Bible is not God's word, but it, it might contain aspects of God's word. See the difference? Now it's given to me as the church to look at the Bible and try to weigh what is and what is not God's word. How do you know what is and what isn't? What do you know what to take out and what to leave in? Well, the first wave higher critics were saying uh, the miracles will toss out. The Old Testament, we were okay saying that that's mostly God's word. The New Testament, we're, we're going to hold tight on Jesus. That's the main thing. Because we're Christians, and if we're going to maintain a Christian church, we've got to hold on to Jesus. Our, our, you know, our pensions are tied to this church and so forth. The second wave higher critics came along and said, we don't even need Jesus. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He wasn't born of a virgin. That doesn't happen. All the miracles of Jesus didn't happen. But you know what? He was a pretty handy teacher. So the Bible takes this new face of being more of like an Aesop's fable or a handy fairy tale. Santa Claus is a very handy fairy tale, spoiler alert. Uh, it's a very handy fairy tale for teaching your kids to be nice, right? So I can, I can take the Jesus-y stuff and teach a vacation Bible school for the community that teaches kids to be nice and share. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. Do unto others you have them do unto you, Right? These are all good. Fun. Jesus didn't have to die and rise for that to be, for that to be a, a nice moral principle. So the higher critical school took the Bible and stripped it of its, uh, its un, unwielding authority. It says it can err. Paul, for example, says a lot of unpopular thing in today's era of, about regarding women and sexuality, the role of the role of women in the church, and. Uh, like homosexuality being sin would be key examples there. And those are very popular ideas today. And so Paul is obviously a male chauvinist pig. So all of Paul, we're not going to really focus on that. That's not really God's word. And if we are going to call it God's word, we're going to adjust it or reinterpret everything he says. Or, Or here's what they'll say. Paul was writing to his time. Uh, addressing things at that time. And Paul himself was a sinner. So there's truths about God in there, but we can't take it as the letter of God's law for us. 
So then we fast forward to today, and we end up with those church bodies that said, no, the Bible is God's word, period. And those who say, no, the Bible contains God's word, but we have to kind of choose what is and what is not God's word. And God works ultimately through society, and we can kind of get a feel for what is love. God, God is love, after all. So we get a feel, we get a sense of what is love by looking out the world and kind of seeing what, what is interpreted as love today. So drive down, downtown Naperville, you got St. Peter and Paul, very faithful Catholic church, faithful Catholic church. I'm not saying they're, they're right, obviously, but they're an ally and a lot of things and very conservative. And across the street from them is the Methodist church that's waving as many rainbow flags as is physically possible to put on that building. So it's like, what is going on? How are you both Christian? I don't, how does this happen? It all comes back down to what is the, what is the authority of God's word or not? Now, obviously the Catholics still have issues with that with the Pope and that's a different conversation. But the, when it comes to, especially what is God's law of right and wrong, good and evil, where do we come from and so forth, that is up in the air in the ELCA. And they've networked together today with like Methodists, so Grace Methodists, uh, the, uh, one branch of Presbyterianism, the Episcopalians. They're all kind of this very lib socially liberal because they've denied the inerrancy of God's word. That's, what, that's why you're seeing such a clear divide. Then you've got those who say the Bible is God's word, and then we just like, disagree on how certain things are interpreted. Obviously, we'd argue that we're right. Uh, that's, but there's a conversation to be had there, and we can have the conversation, and we do, because we have the Bible as an objective source of truth. So I can sit down with a Catholic guy and talk about the Bible. It's funny, they still they appeal, they appeal to often the history of the church, the traditions of Rome and the councils and the voice of the Pope speaking from the seat of Rome as an authority in parallel to the Bible, which is problematic. You got ideas like purgatory and stuff like that. Well, that, so the Bible isn't the only authority in the Catholic church. Then we get into like the, the Southern Baptists where Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. We say, all right, he said, this is my body. It doesn't make any sense to me, but that's what he said. And so I'm gonna take him at his word. He also calls me forgiven. Uh, he calls me a saint. I look in the mirror and I don't see a saint, but I'm gonna take him at his word, right? So he says, this is my body. That's what he, that's what he meant. But then the, the enthusiasts, uh, so the, the Anabaptists who became the Baptists and most of today's modern evangelicalism look at the Bible and say, uh, what, so Jesus said, this is my body, but that's not what he meant. What he meant was, well, how, so you know what God means? How are you able to interpret what God means, like in it, especially if it contrasts what's clearly written there in the Bible? Well, the Holy Spirit laid it on my heart. Well, now we're getting in trouble, right? So how do I know? By, by the way, the Holy Spirit laid it on my heart that... Um, that if, if your neighbor gives you a bunch of bourbon, you should share it with your pastor. <laughs> the whole, Holy Spirit laid it on my heart that we should buy a private jet with this extra money that we got lying around. Like the Holy Spirit laid it on my heart is dangerous territory. Um, and even if I actually firmly believe that the Holy Spirit is talking to me, you just said it right there, it's fine. Thank you very much. Um, I like to decorate the back of the sanctuary. Um, <laughs> If, the Holy Spirit, if, I, if I actually do think the Holy Spirit's laying something on my heart, what does that mean? I prayed about something, and I'm feeling this like, I'm feeling a tug in one way or, or another. 
Have you ever like been in traffic and gotten cut off and felt a certain tug to use certain fingers? <laughs> well, was that, a, was that the Holy Spirit? It was a tug. Or you know what? My wife doesn't really love me. I'm feeling a certain tug toward this girl at work who's really nice to me and see she really gets me. And I prayed about it. And she, I think my wife doesn't love me and well, I think we'd be better off because she could find someone she loves and I could find someone I love. So now God is talking to me when it clearly contrasts God's word. See? So don't put any, you can't put any stock in what your heart tells you. Everything, regardless of what Disney tells our kids, don't listen to your heart because it's going to tell you what you want to hear, right? So it can't be trusted, especially as God's word. So we want to flee the heart and that's where we get into a lot more differences among denominations in Christianity today. So that's hence the diversity and, and such liberalism, crazy liberalism. You're, you're looking at it like, how is this even possible? What do you mean you're a transgender practicing, you identify as a shoebox today and now you're a pastor in the, in the ELCA church? How is, this, how is this possible? Well, I feel like a shoebox today and therefore I am. That's my reality. You don't have to believe it. But I ask you to respect my reality that I'm a shoebox. What? You're either a shoebox or you're not. If you're a shoebox, you're not a pastor. <laughs> it's, a, it's a totally absurd. But I, I kind of want to talk to somebody who identifies as a shoebox. That'd be awesome. <laughs> um, I'm going to... I got a lot of ground. Um, so very quick, a third diamond, liturgy note, speaking of God's word. If you're ever wondering this, when you come to church on Sunday, we're delivering God's um, gifts to you. And God's word is central, central to us as the primary place through which God delivers his cross and forgiveness to us today. Um, we obviously can't read all the Bible in a Sunday. You'd be bored to tears. We couldn't actually get through the whole thing. So what the, the church done since, since the start, even back in the Old Testament, it's always read excerpts of scripture, usually in some kind of cyclical pattern. And so the, uh, the, we follow what's called a lectionary, and usually, the, especially the, the three-year lectionary, it's called the Common Revised Lectionary. It's, it's actually shared by even the liberal churches. Um, most mainline Protestant churches and even the Catholic Church today follow the three-year lectionary. It's guided by, we're reading, uh, starting at around uh, Thanksgiving time, we start Advent, which is preparation for Christmas. So we got John the Baptist and also some end time stuff. And then, uh, then the birth of Jesus at Christmas, and then Jesus being revealed, manifested to be the Savior in Epiphany around January. And then we get into Lent, which is preparation for Easter. And during that time, we're mostly focusing on the life and works of Jesus between Advent and Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus. Then after Easter Sunday, the, we hear the readings about Jesus after his resurrection. And then the entire summer, the season of Pentecost, in which we are now, we get a lot of the teachings of Jesus and the life of the church. But it works through, driven primarily by the gospel. Like one year, this year we're in Matthew, series A. So the gospel, we're working through kind of progressively the gospel of Matthew, one chunk at a time. But you can't hit everything, so it's like the major chunks. And then that's paired with an Old Testament lesson that usually shares a common theme. Think if there's a prophecy that's fulfilled or it's addressing a common topic, that's where the Old Testament lesson comes from. 
And typically, unless it's a special feast day, the, there's an epistle reading in the middle. Epistle means letter. So it's a, uh, w- those, those epistles we work through just without any tie necessarily to the other readings. We just start with like 1 Timothy 1 and work through like that. Um, so that's where the readings come from. So the preacher is not, it, this is actually a gift to you as people in the church and also to the pastor. You could come up to me and say, Pastor, like, uh, like I know Harvey probably will, Pastor, you should preach on stewardship every Sunday for a year. And then we can really get our numbers up, right? Well, first of all, everybody would hate that. Um, and I'm not talking to you when you're struggling with a particular sin that you need to be freed from, or you're, you're, uh, you're, your kid's sick in some way and you're starting to question God when it comes to suffering. The Bible actually addresses a lot of issues. The, so the goal in the church lectionary is to try to cover the whole counsel of God over the course of one year, driven by a particular gospel. Matt, this, this year, Matthew, Next year, so starting in Advent, so after Thanksgiving, will be uh, Mark slash John, sorry, a little bit of Mark, a little bit of John, and then the third year is Luke. So we kind of work through, that's kind of driving the cycles through. And that's, and that's why you're like, you'll see some churches that ha- they're driven by a theme, like we're gonna focus on the Christian life, which is vague, but, uh, or whatever. Um, I, or you'll see a church driven by, we're going to study Luke because I want to study Luke for a while. Well, that's fine too. You're in, the, you're in God's word. But what, what if I just decided that you guys need to learn how to repent? So we're going to, we're going to spend a year on repentance. Um, that's not the whole counsel of God. I really like dealing with the comfort of God in the face of suffering, but that's leaving a lot of other issues on the table. Yes, we do have to talk about money some because Jesus pointed out as a primary idol for us. So it has to come up, but it's not the only thing we talk about. Neither is death, neither is Easter, neither is the birth. I mean, so all these issues we cycle through. If you ever wonder where those come from. And sometimes the, the reading itself will be a hard one. That is a hard one to hear, a lot of law from Jesus. And uh, that's when I used to start off the sermon with, I didn't pick this today. <laughs> uh, but we gotta, we're working through it, right? So now that we know what reality is, haven't we, so back to our worship flow of how we're ordering our, our new member class here. The Lord, remember, calls us together in his name. We begin the service in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the name he puts on us in holy baptism. Where two or more are called together, there I am among them. He's called us here, and then we confess. So the pastor peels off over here to the side, and we confess reality. That is my sin. And then we, we hear from God the remedy for that, for that sin. And we start off the bat with that. We, start, we, we confess reality. But so according to the scriptures, what is that reality? And that's page two here. So flip over. If you grew up Lutheran, you're familiar with this, the distinction between the law and gospel. Here's a quote from Luther. So uh, to mix law and gospel not only clouds the knowledge of grace, but it cuts out Christ altogether. Law and gospel, when you think of the Bible, you can, even though there's, there's so many different themes going on, but you, Luther had this helpful way of breaking down the scriptures into that which is law and that which is gospel. And sometimes it's the same scripture passage that actually hits you as law or gospel, depending on where you are in your life at that time. But the law and the gospel have to be kept in their proper place. And when one starts to creep into the realm of the other, 
Like, like uh, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I'm asking about eternal life. That sounds like nice. But I'm asking, what must I do? As the rich guy said to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I'm asking a law question. The, go- the gospel's job is not meant to get you, or sorry, the law's job is not meant to get you to heaven. So here I come and I'm asking the law, okay, what, what must I do according to the law to get into heaven? Okay, if you want to keep the law to get into heaven, be perfect. And that's what Jesus says, keep the Ten Commandments. And the guy says, oh, I've done this since I was born, since I was a child, I've kept the Ten Jesus said, oh yeah, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. So it turns out you've got a pretty big idol in front of you, don't you? You're not perfect as you thought you were. So the law's job is to knock us down off of the assumption that we can somehow pull ourselves up to heaven. The law's job is to show us how to love our neighbor and, most importantly, show us our problem. It's the x-ray that shows us the broken bone. It's the, what's the, what's the test, the, the oncological test that reveals um, cancer? C, cat, cat scan? No, that, no. Hey. That's not relevant to everyone. Uh, Regardless of how you identify, it subjectively doesn't apply to everyone. Um, No, it's the test that that identifies whether or not you have cancer. PET scan, PET scan. It's this start with a P, thank you, Susan, but you're off. (laughs) The person who can rightly divide law and gospel has reason to thank God. He is a true theologian. The right separation between law and gospel is very important to know. Christian doctrine is impossible without it. Let all who love and fear God diligently learn the difference, not only in theory, but also in practice. That's what his Galatians commentary. So let us dive into then this distinction between what is law and what is gospel. So fill in the blank. Fun little game here. The blank is good news. What means good news? Gospel. Euangelion. That's the Greek Uh, The gospel means good news. Specifically, it's not just good news in a bad situation. That's, by the way, how the higher critics define the gospel. Uh, So good news is not, hey, good news, it's raining today. We needed rain. That's not gospel. That's good weather report or whatever, right? The gospel, the euangelion, is good news specifically about what on the cross for sinners? Or who? Jesus. So the gospel is specifically about Jesus on the cross for sinners. The primary message of the gospel is Jesus for you. What Jesus does to save you. It's all gift. It's all God about salvation for us. It's all given to us. So it's what what Jesus has done for us. So if the gospel is good news, the law is blank news bad news. And that's how you might have perceived the law prior today, and that's the wrong answer. So if you already wrote, if you already wrote bad news in there, in pen, um, I don't care, we print more copies of this later. The law is good news too. So what I'm going to try to do here in the next 15 minutes, 12 minutes, is help convince you how the Lord's gift of law is in fact a gift. And it's good news. Now, it is not in contrast to the gospel, but the law, the law sets before us what is in fact good, how God has created it. And it, when you hold up what is perfect and good next to what is broken, it shows, it reveals the brokenness. 
right? It's the x-ray that shows the brokenness. So uh, the law is good. It gives us these perfect pictures of how things are meant to be according to God, but it does, in fact, reveal our, our problems. Um, when you consider the Ten Commandments, so that's the law, the law boiled down. Boiled down, that's the word I was looking for earlier with the reduction. Boiled down, two words. Um, the, the Ten Commandments boil down the, the God, God's law into like ten basic things. So if you flip in your Bible, go ahead and grab your Bible there. Whoever gets to Exodus 21st and gets us a page number can get free donuts for the ride home. Sixty-one. We have a winner. So I'll have to do my whole unfolding of the Ten Commandments probably uh, next week. So today we'll just kind of inter- uh, introduce it. As we consider the Ten Commandments, as we're given here, uh, God spoke all these words, saying, "I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and of those." Out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image. On and on it goes. So I want to look at a few misconceptions about the law. We might have, you might have grown up hearing the law as imperatives. Don't do this, right? Imperative tense for you grammar files. Uh, So it's telling you what to do. Don't touch the stove, right? Uh, that's not how they're written in the Hebrew. The Hebrew, they're in, they're in the indicative case. So indicative is simply a statement of reality. I am a, I am a pastor. I am a father. I am a human. As a human, oh, let me put it this way, humans breathe oxygen. If I cease to breathe oxygen, I am dead. So I, sense to, I cease to be a living human. So it's kind of, it's interesting thinking about the Ten Commandments like this because as they're given in the indicative case, the way it starts off, I am the Lord your God. My identity, I start with me. I start with, I am the Lord your God and you are my people. I am your God. I am your God. You are my people. And I led you out of Israel. You were in slavery and that's pretty miserable for you. And I said, let's get out of here and uh, we're gonna go have a great life in the promised land. And uh, things are going to go very well for you. Don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat. Be good to your wife, love your kids. Uh, come back with me every, every week and I'm going to clean you up and, and we're going to reboot, recharge for next week and go and let's, let's go have fun. Let's get after it. It's going to be great. So it's given as a gift. But then when, when we fail to have no other God, so my, I am the Lord your God, you are my people. My people don't have other gods. So when you have another God, you are not my people. So you see what happens with our sin isn't just that we've done something naughty, but in our sin, in our transgressions, we actually cut ourselves off from being God's people. Hence the significance of our sin. The greatness of our sin is that we, we actually, we throw ourselves away from God and go off on our own. So it's given, in the, it's given in the indicative case, which that, in that way it does condemn us. It shows us our, our total, our, uh, what we've earned is damnation and we don't deserve anything good from God whatsoever. 
But it also describes us insofar as we are Christian. It describes the way we are to live. I don't have any other gods. So uh, when something is starting to creep in and become my God, that I'm fear, as Luther puts it, fear, love, and trust. So anything that I fear more than him has become my God. Uh, and these things make me very anxious. I fear what's gonna happen when a nuclear bomb goes off, or I fear what happens when I finally get diagnosed with some kind of cancer, or I fear what happens if I get laid off from my job, or I fear, I fear, I fear, I fear. Now, and my fear cause it gives me anxiety because I don't actually believe in God to take care of me. That even if I do get cancer, it's his gift to me that he might work through to ultimately call me to himself. I don't actually believe that. And that's why I fear. So I, my fear shows me my unbelief, and therefore also my sin and my need for a savior. Whatever I love more than God. Yeah, I mean, I, I, and we're, all, we're all guilty of this. There are things that I would rather do instead of pondering the greatness of God and, and studying God's word. I mean, have you ever sat down and watched, I'm right, right now Mandy and I are binge watching Friday Night Lights again. Anybody, Friday Night Lights, no? What's a good binge-worthy? You ever see Stranger Things? That was cool a couple years ago. I'm trying to relate to you, and you're all in different places. I'm like, how do I, what's really addictive to watch that's good? Give me something. Yellowstone. Yellowstone. That's a terrible example. We're in church, man. <laughs> I, too, have been sucked into the Yellowstone bottomless pit, but uh, so we'll go with Yellowstone. Have you noticed how when you watch, uh, yeah, yeah, that's terrible. It's, Friday Night Lights. It's bad, too, but just on a different level. But so I'm watching Friday Night Lights, and they end. I love football. So, like, Friday Night Lights is based on football. So they're always, like, getting ready for the next game. And, like, I want to actually watch the game. But it's not about the game. The show's about the drama and the families and all this stuff. I don't care about that. I want to watch the game. But, like, they get to the very end, and, like, about to show the game, and then it ends. And I got to, like, start the next one. Do you ever feel that way when a sermon is over? That it's over already? Can you, can you get it going again? Of course not. <laughs> Have you ever sat down to, to read God's word and thought, man, Leviticus 15, come on, baby, here we go. The time just flies. Uh, I mean, some, sometimes, thanks be to God, we have these, these, uh, these joyful moments where we really dwell and appreciate God's word, but the fact is, at times, uh, we don't feel so good. We, we do, in fact, we love other things more. Uh, and then the devil comes along. The first temptation is, hey, this fruit over here is better for you than what Jesus said. In fact, Jesus doesn't love you. God doesn't love you. He's holding out on you. He doesn't know what's best for you. This over here is better for you, and Jesus is holding it back. Why would he be holding it back from you? Hmm. Probably because he doesn't want you to be like him. So give it a shot. It'll be better. And that's behind every one of the devil's temptations. Your marriage isn't going so well. This lady loves you more. Uh, she really gets you, right? Uh, go down that road. And just like happened to Adam and Eve, the, the sin never delivers that which it promises. The devil never comes through with these promises of you'll be like God knowing good and evil and things will go well for you. Well, they, they started to know good and evil, so he's half right. Just like the sin promises a little bit of pleasure, but it's only temporary. There's not this great happiness, but it's actually, in fact, the same thing Adam and Eve felt. Shame and disappointment that you cannot undo. That then leads to a whole life of despair. 
And that's our sin as well. Our love and our trust and our fear drive us away from God in a variety of different ways. And that's what the commandments lay out that we'll get to next week. Um, I want to, any questions there? I'm pause for a second on the law. I know we were, I, I'm sorry I'm this way. I love teaching so much. I wish I could teach you for hours and hours and hours, but my wife would kill me and I can't have that. I'm not a good teacher if I'm dead. But we'll have to teach next week. So um, uh, a couple quick things before I run out of time. Oktoberfest. Let me finish the law real quick, and I'll come back. Um, so uh, the command, the, we think of the, the commandments. They're not called commandments. The word in the, in the Hebrew, the Decalogue, 10 words. They're 10 words, not commands. They're statements of reality of who we are as God's people. Um, and they come to us. They hit us as commands that we, that we fail to achieve. Uh, the context is uh, God leading his people out of Israel. We'll start there next week. And that they're not bad. They're, in fact, good. They're a picture of the good life. This is like, if you actually keep the, if you, if you strive to keep the Ten Commandments, things do go better for you. If you, I mean, watch any, what's that, another movie. Uh, what's the one with the guy who makes crystal meth? Breaking Bad. Have you noticed how when you go down these life, the life of crime, it's like stealing and lying and murder and, that's, and adultery. It's all kind of wrapped. It all kind of comes all together. And it's none of it's any good. It's all, but it all it gives this illusion of necessity. You need to do this to get out of this terrible situation. And it promise, things will be better for you if you do this thing. But actually, things are, it's, that's slavery. The Lord wants to actually free us from bondage. But in our sin, we think the law is... The law is God killing our fun. And that if I could just sin, then that would be freedom. So living a life of total open freedom is a life of sin. That's actually a life of slavery to sin. The, the Christian life, li- living according to God's commandments, obedience to his word, saying yes to what he is, knows to be best for us, that's actually freedom from sin. And that has this thing in the Ten Commandments here as the rules at the pool. That's why I have this picture of the pool rules there. It's not God trying to kill our fun. Don't, so you send your kids off to college, you say, don't have sex. Because it's just no, just, just don't. Or are we actually trying to spare them from these, these actions that have physical consequences, but then also joining yourself to someone that's probably not gonna be your spouse, that will then have, you, you take that person with you for the rest of your life? There's spiritual consequences there. There's shame and guilt involved. So there's so many other aspects to it. So it's like the same thing when the, when the lifeguard blows the whistle, the no running. And my little kids who are on a run, you ever see a little kid at a pole and they're told not to run, they start <laughs> as fast as they can. Uh, but they're not, I'm not running, I'm not, I'm not bending the knee. Um, no running at the pool. It's not because the lifeguard's trying to kill your fun, it's because if you slip, what? You could die. No glass at the pool. Because you ever try to clean up glass from a watery surface? One time Mandy had a body wash in a glass container for some stupid reason. And I, of course, knocked it off the shelf. So it's her fault for having the glass thing, not mine, just saying. <laughs> glass is all over the shower. You're trying to clean up glass, but it's wet. You can't do it. It's impossible, you know? Uh, so glass in the pool would be a very bad idea. So no glass at the pool, no running the horseplay, because you think it's fun to play chicken until the kid falls off and hits his head on the side of the pool and he's in a coma. And then he falls in the water and he drowns. 
So the rules of the pool are actually there not to kill your fun, but to preserve your life. And actually living according to the rules actually gives you joy because it's more fun to be playing in the pool than in the ER, right? So the commandments there, they do show us our sin insofar as we break them, but he is laying out there for us this wonderful gift that sets us free from the bondage of sin and then also gives us joy. And that's what we'll, next week we'll look at the Ten Commandments more directly and, um, and talk about a little bit more of the, the law and the depth of our sin. And you get to talk about why there's a, a dead tree there on the next page. And that's probably all we're going to have time to talk about next week. So we need to wrap it up. Uh, a couple of reminders. If you have any questions, please stick around. I'm sorry I, I went up to the buzzer again today. I'm not sorry. I prefer to talk. Uh, Oktoberfest is at 3 o'clock, between 3 and 7. It's a big window. We have, I think we only have eight kegs of homebrew and then a, a keg of spot in Oktoberfest. Not that that's the point, but there's wine and, and there's all kinds of fun stuff. But the idea is the fellowship, getting around. And you guys are especially invited. You're the guests of honor uh, because it's the congregation. Really, the people who come to this event, it's the, it'll be the 150 people you'll see at everything. Bible studies, um, every event, it's, it's like, you'll, you'll start to figure it out, there's the same people everywhere. There's actually probably seven, eight hundred members in this church, uh, active, that is worshiping once every couple months, there's probably like 500-ish, pretty regular, around 350 to 400 pretty regular people. A lot of them just take off because they got to drive all the way back to Oswego, so it ends up being about 150 to, to 175 super-duper active folks. So come to Oktoberfest and get to know them. They're really cool people. And there's those also who are not so cool. And that's how families go. Because you're in a family not because you're cool, because you're family. You have what's, what, you have in, what you have in common is what matters most. And so we, like any family, we have all types. And we, we, get to have the, we get to have friends with people of like mind. And we get to help those who have not. And rejoice with those who rejoice. And help those who suffer. And... It's a, fan, it's, it's a joyful thing. So come if you can. I think we only have two bouncy houses, which I promise I'll be jumping in both of them at some point during the day um, and lots of different ways to get to know folks. So uh, please come if you can. That's, again, three to seven here right behind the, the mall. And it looks like great weather today, so praise the Lord for that. Let's, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you very much. Remember Bible study on uh, this, this coming Sunday, St. Michael and all angels. So we'll talk a little bit about angels in the, ser in the sermon. I get to preach, so I'm excited about that. And Bible study in the gym, we'll talk about angels a little bit more and then also continue uh, into Holy Week. Talking about the Lord's Supper, actually, if you're interested in that. That, that should be, if I get to it, uh, the Lord's Supper and Bible study on Sunday uh, in between. So a lot, lot, lot going on at Bethany this weekend, so it's good. Have a great week. End. <laughs> Uh, you can bring your, you, you can keep your handouts, throw them away, bring them with, I'll print more, whatever. God will make more trees and then he'll eventually he'll destroy them. So it's fine. <laughs>